This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. It has been pretty well known for some time now that Silicon Valley is a male-dominated arena and that it has been difficult for women to make inroads there. But beyond that, the culture around some of these companies is not good for women at all. A new book looks at how bad it can get at times. It is titled Brotopia by Emily Chang of Bloomberg Television, who joins us right now. Emily, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Um, it's interesting. I mean, we've talked about it on this show a, a few times over the last few years, the, the culture in and around Silicon Valley. This is something that, unfortunately, to a degree, is not kind of a hidden story. You bring out some some amazing details, which I think will will capture a lot of people's attention. But this is a story that's been going on for quite a while. And I think a lot of people are wondering at this point why it continues. You know, it's interesting. When I started doing my research, I thought, like most people, this is how the tech industry always was. But when I went back to the early days of computing, I learned that women actually were vital parts of the computer industry in the early days. They were programming computers for the military and programming computers for NASA. You think about it like hidden figures, but industry-wide. And then in the 60s and 70s, the industry was exploding, and they needed good programmers so desperately that uh, a software company hired two psychologists to develop a personality test to identify good programmers. And they decided that good programmers, quote, don't like people. Well, if you look for people who don't like people, you'll hire far more men than women. That's what the research tells us. Right. And there's no evidence to support this idea that people who don't like people are good at this job. But those tests were widely influential and used by tech companies for decades. And they've perpetuated this stereotype of the antisocial, mostly white male nerd as somebody who is the only kind of person who can be good at this job. So, so this one test, you know, 40, 45 years ago is something that has basically set the path for this entire industry since then. Look, a lot of things became self-perpetuating. You know, at about the same time, you had women charging into computer science and getting 37% of computer science degrees. Well, that has since plummeted down to 18%, a number that has remained flat for a decade. You know, this stereotype was then repeated in pop culture and repeated by investors who were looking for uh, the new entrepreneurs to fund. And, And they want people who look like Mark Zuckerberg and look like Bill Gates and look like Bill, uh, Steve Jobs. And unfortunately, none of them look like women. So all of these things combined sort of reinforce this idea of, of who can do this and what that person looks like. And it persists to this day. You talked with a, a variety of, of Silicon Valley executives in, in doing this book. What do they say uh, needs to change? What do they believe are some of the fundamental ideas that need to change to, to maybe to a degree take it back, take Silicon back to its its true roots, to, to, as you said, where women were a vital part? You know, unfortunately, a lot of people believe that this is a pipeline problem. So they blame the number of, of women studying computer science. They say that there's just not enough women to choose from. But the argument that I make is that the tech industry actually created the pipeline problem by having such a narrow idea of of who can do this job. 
Now, that said, there are people like Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, for example, told me it's not just a pipeline problem. It's a retention problem when we have a lot of work to do to make our companies more hospitable and welcoming to women. And and there are people who I interviewed like Sheryl Sandberg who make the obvious point that we need more women in leadership. You cannot be what you can't see. And that's when culture will start to change. So, you know, what companies, what you're seeing some companies reckon with is this idea that they really need to change their hiring practices to make sure that they're sourcing candidates from, you know, a wide variety of backgrounds, but they really need to change their culture. And there are so many examples in the book of, you know, cultural issues that are so deep seated that have unfortunately become toxic to women and and Mm -hmm. put them in uncomfortable positions. Like what? Well, Susan Fowler, a a young female engineer at Uber, on her first day on the job, she was propositioned for sex by her manager over the company chat system. (laughs) And when she told Human Resources, she had screenshots of this This is happening over the company chat system. She tells Human Resources and they say, we're going to let that slide because he's a high performer. I spoke to other engineers at Uber, female engineers who were invited to strip clubs and and bondage clubs in the middle of the day. You know, there were kegs open on the floor. And, you know, you, you go to these social events outside the office and work is getting done. You might decide yeah. who gets to lead that project or which feature to pursue. And unfortunately, this is not a level playing field. Uh, you mentioned the, the the beer issue and the drinking issue, which I, actually I, I have a friend that works for. Uh, it's actually a retail company uh, that's based here in Philadelphia, and that person had talked about you know the, the the extensive parties that they have and playing beer pong in the office. You know, I mean, some of these some of these things, it's almost like you've got people that have just tried to to carry the college lifestyle on into their twenties and and even into their thirties. A lot of these companies look like college dorm fantasy lands, and that is in part because they're trying to attract the best young people. But by the way, we don't need only young people making these products. We need people of of all ages and backgrounds. But you are right. There is alcohol on demand. There is free breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You can bring your pet to work. Um, You can get your gym clothes washed. It gets to a point where the company is doing so many things for you that you can sort of abdicate your responsibilities about everything else. And, you know, these aren't children. These are grown people who are working. And, you know, I don't understand why you need to have alcohol on demand at work. Um, And you can certainly see the potential for that to be used in the wrong way. You mentioned also that, I guess, in terms of testing code, there was an old, like, 1972 Playboy centerfold that was used, and I guess to a degree it is still being used? It is still being used. So the the model in that centerfold was Lena Soderberg, a Swedish model. And in 1973, you had a bunch of engineers at a University of Southern California computer lab who were looking for a photograph to test their code. And this was, you know, in part towards the development of of what we now know as the JPEG. It just so happened there was a Playboy magazine lying around the office. Of course there was. nobody thought that was odd. Nobody thought that was odd. And they chose a photo that was in the centerfold, and that photo went on to be widely used. I mean, Playboy, uh, you know, for for, for Goad, the copyright rules around it and and basically made it available for anyone to use for free. You had it being used by teams working on Apple's 
Google's iPhone to Google Images. And if you ask men, they're Some of them are surprised, like, oh, I didn't realize she was naked. That's kind of funny. You ask women, (laughs) and it's completely alienating. And it sort of makes them realize, oh, yeah, that's right. I am the only woman in the room. And, you know, it it has been a very unfortunate sort of historical footnote. And it goes to prove this idea that, you know, there's a lot of ignorance at this point. But in my mind, especially after writing this book, Ignorance can only be willful. What is the reaction of the, 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 the highest execs, the board of directors of some of these companies? You know, as some of this stuff is going out, I mean, I guess to a degree, there's a little bit of privacy that a lot of this stuff is being kept within the walls of the company and not necessarily making its way up to the board. But I would think that, you know, if you're talking about a board of directors and probably some that have unbelievable business experience, they have to be shocked that a lot of this stuff is going on. I've definitely heard from my sources that, you know, in boardrooms, directors are asking more questions about what is going on. And the Me Too movement that we've been seeing happening in Hollywood and in Washington has been happening in Silicon Valley, too. And and there is a sort of a reckoning. You know, at the same time, I I do think that there are some people who who don't believe that uh, things are so bad. And when you uh, accrue, you know, such gigantic amounts of wealth and power, it's easy to become disconnected from sort of real people and to think that the, the ends justify the means. And so, you know, that's why I wrote this book. You know, a lot of people don't realize how and why we got here. And they think, oh, this is the way it is. Therefore, it must have always been this way. When in fact, it wasn't always this way. And it doesn't have to be this way. It's not too late to change. And I fully believe that the people who are taking us to Mars and building self-driving cars and who have given us rides at the push of a button that they can change this too. They can hire more women and pay them fairly. Is, is there an expectation, though, uh, of some people within Silicon Valley of the potential harm that this can do to businesses because of the impact? I mean, we all know that that we're going to see more and more jobs in the, in these spaces uh, in the years to come, and that women are going to need to fill a lot more of these jobs. If if you're not filling them with women when you need them, and if you're not getting the job done that you need to get done, there is a business impact that will happen on these companies. Do they realize that fact? Absolutely. Well, I hope they do. I think some of them do, but not everyone, unfortunately. It becomes a matter of time, and there's not a lot of patience when you're building a company that's growing very quickly. You know, I think people are thinking too short-term. They just want to fill the seat and move on and get the product out. But there is a certain amount of short-term thinking here that I think can be very dangerous to the long-term. Let me give you an example of Google. I, I have a whole chapter on the history of Google and how yeah. Larry Page and Sergey Brin, the founders of Google, actually focused on hiring and promoting women in the yeah. early days. As a result, they got people like Sheryl Sandberg, who scaled the entire ad business, and Susan Wojcicki, who convinced them to buy YouTube and is now running YouTube, and Marissa Meyer, who became the CEO of Yahoo. She built Google's sort of minimalist homepage that we use every single day. Those women are among the very few you standouts of women in Silicon Valley and were critical to the company. But somewhere along the way, they just stopped focusing on, you know, hiring women as a priority. And they focused on scaling the business and getting those seats filled as fast as possible. And now Google's numbers are simply average, which we know that the average is 
fairly depressing. Right. And so it just goes to show that, you know, this needs to be a you know, a one, two, three priority, not just in the beginning, but at every stage of a company's life cycle. Because if you lose focus, the bigger you get, the harder it is to change. Emily Chang is with uh, Bloomberg Television. She is also the author of the book, Brotopia, Breaking Up the Boys Club of Silicon Valley. Your comments are welcome at any point if you would like. 844-WHARTON is the number to give us a call. 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get to your phone, send us a comment on Twitter, and we will bring it up on the show at biz radio 111 biz radio 111 or you can use my twitter account which is at dan loney l-o-n-e-y 21 and we will bring it up on the show you also spend time uh in the book talking about venture capitalists and obviously vc money is 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 very important for a lot of these smaller companies when they are you know they're getting started uh and and really starting to kind of you know break through with whatever development they actually have Within this culture, what role do the VCs play? Um, Are they trying to kind of set a pattern, maybe in a different direction, or are they following along with what the culture norms are within these companies? Venture capitalists are the kingmakers of Silicon Valley. So these are the people who have billions and billions of dollars to give to entrepreneurs and give them a shot at being the next Mark Zuckerberg or the next Facebook. And as I mentioned, the vast majority of them are men who are already incredibly wealthy. And so it makes you wonder whether these men should really be the ones, you know, deciding or you know, alone deciding what gets a chance to be the next Facebook. Um, unfortunately, the firms are very male-dominated, and women entrepreneurs that I spoke to um, – feel that they have a completely uphill battle, especially when they're shopping ideas that cater primarily towards women. And, um, you know, I interviewed a young woman named Katrina Lake, who is the CEO and founder of a company called Stitch Fix, which is an online personal styling service. And when she brought her idea to investors, 50 of them said no before one said yes. Hmm. Well, she's just taken her company public at a $2 billion market cap. And it just goes to prove that you know, the venture capitalists who are making these decisions here don't always know um, what the next big thing is going to be, which means it is incumbent on them to make sure that they have people of a diversity of backgrounds at the table. Because, you know, Silicon Valley is controlling what we read, what we see, how we shop, the video games our children are playing. These are products that billions and billions of people use, people of all backgrounds, and people of all backgrounds should be making these products as well. You mentioned uh, a little bit ago about the woman who, uh, on the first day that she was uh, at a company, uh, was propositioned. Uh, the, the role that that social media plays, and, and obviously a lot of these companies, is, as you mentioned, have within themselves the internal uh, dialogue platform so that, that employees can talk with one another. How damaging can these types of platforms be right now with these companies, knowing that they can obviously be beneficial if you're having the right type of communication? It's interesting. One of the thought exercises I I do in the book is, what if women built the Internet? How different might it look? (laughs) And I spoke with Evan Williams, who is a co-founder of Twitter, who told me he thinks if there had been more women on the founding team of Twitter, that online harassment and trolling wouldn't be such a problem. 
women are the victims of the most extreme forms of harassment online. And, and he admitted that they weren't thinking about this when they were building Twitter. They were thinking about all the wonderful and amazing things that could be done with it, right. not how could it be used to hurl death threats. And so, you know, I wonder, would online harassment and trolling be such a problem? Would video games be so violent? Would porn be so ubiquitous? Would we have better parental controls? Of course, we can never know for sure the answers to these questions, but I I, I think it's a pretty convincing argument that, you know, simply having people from a diversity of backgrounds who are asking different kinds of questions Mm -hmm. um, can lead to a better outcome when it comes to the products that billions of people are using. Is part of the need uh, to have these companies do a better job of supporting STEM education, uh, especially when you're talking about at the high school level with, with young girls getting ready to make that jump to college? Definitely. These companies, you know, are some of them investing a lot of money in the pipeline, if you will. So um, the, you know, young men and women who will become, you know, future programmers. But that said, that is not enough. You can't simply throw money at the problem and think that um, things will get better. These companies have a lot of work to do themselves to create environments that are more inclusive. And unfortunately, uh, there's been a lot of abdication of responsibility, you know, on the part of companies as big as Google and Facebook, where where you know recruiters have told me it's out, it, you know it's a lot more talk than action we need to see action this is not you know they can't change who went to college 5 years ago but they can change the way that they're doing business right now the the other interesting part about it is the fact that while some of the stuff that is going on in and around Silicon Valley, we're also having this larger discussion uh, within the country about harassment uh, and obviously all the instances that, that have popped up. Do those two link in your mind? They do. And a lot of people don't realize that uh, the Me Too movement, in my mind, actually started in, in Silicon Valley with a woman named Ellen Powell, who was an investor at a venture capital firm called Kleiner Perkins. And in 2012, she sued Kleiner for gender discrimination. And she lost in court uh, in, in 2015, but she won in the court of public opinion. And I think it started a dialogue that simply wasn't happening. No one had dared to speak up about these kinds of behaviors. And fast forward a couple of years, we had Susan Fowler, the Uber engineer who I mentioned coming forward, and a number of other women entrepreneurs uh, coming forward about you know investors and tech executives who had put them in uncomfortable positions. And this was months before Harvey Weinstein. So it is yeah. happening in Silicon Valley too, but we don't have Reese Witherspoon and Rose McGowan to speak up um, for that kind of behavior. And so I think there is a much more sort of industry-wide reckoning that needs to happen in order to stop it. And, and the irony also is is the fact that Hollywood has, to a degree, promoted some of this within their films, within their TV series uh, over the course of the last several decades. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's saying one thing and doing another. <sighs> Absolutely. I mean, I just it, it, it's it's maddening how few films are directed by women in Hollywood. And I think about, you know, everybody watching them and how, you know, the people who are portrayed in these in these films are portrayed a certain way. I would argue that Silicon Valley is just as if not more powerful than Hollywood, because 
they are making products that we use every single day. Silicon Valley is changing our lives. And we are at risk of rewriting all of this discrimination and gender disparity into the algorithms of the future. So, you know, artificial intelligence and augmented reality and virtual reality. Yeah. We are at the cusp of a whole wave of new technology that, you know, is 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 if we don't change something going to be entirely built by men. But if robots are going to run the world, we can't be they can't be programmed by men alone. We need to have men and women making these decisions. But the, the, the issue of power obviously is something that has been discussed and and you talk a little bit about it as well is, is the fact that you're talking about in some cases people that are very important to some of these companies that as they were growing up may not have had power or may not have had a level of of uh, of importance whether it be in high school or college and now they are kind of thrust into this and it's you know it's to a degree it's like opening pandora's box i do think that an incredible amount of wealth and power has been amassed here in such a short span of time and when that happens over the course of a long career, it comes with a certain socialization. When that happens very quickly, you can, as you say, be thrust into this role where you don't quite understand what your responsibilities are, and yet you have sort of a warped sense of your sort of self-importance and, and your power simply because the product that you're making has exploded or, or taking off, um, which is why you, know, you have these massive companies being run by incredibly young people, yeah. and it has led to a sense of entitlement and arrogance and disconnection from the real world. 844-942-7866 is the number if you would like to join in. The book is Brotopia by Emily Chang. Uh, your comments are welcome. I, let me ask you this. I mean, obviously you have laid out a, 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 a story that to a degree is very sad in that what we have seen, but also to a degree, I think it's hopeful for what the future can be. Is that really the theme that you would like to have people take out of this? I do believe that the people who changed the world and built self-driving cars and they're taking us to Mars, that they can do this too. They can hire women and pay them fairly. And if you look at the numbers, you know, simply just look at the pay gap, which is five yep. times the national average in Silicon Valley, that's easy. Just look at the data and smooth it out. You know, pay people what they deserve or, or, or pay women what, what their male peers are getting. You know, there are some people here who are doing incredible work. First of all, there are entrepreneurs who are breaking down these walls brick by brick. There are female investors who are challenging the stereotype of what an investor should look like. And there are companies run by women and men who are, you know, making hiring and, and, and promoting women a priority and instituting various systems to get that, get them there. But it is not going to happen overnight. Um, but there, there needs to be a greater attention to these issues because, you know, as I point out, the numbers are obvious. And so ignorance can only be willful. You know, saying I didn't understand you were feeling like this or I had no idea you know, that that's an unacceptable excuse anymore. I've now yeah. written a whole book about it. Yeah. Um, this cannot be dismissed. So because of the importance of Silicon Valley, uh, are they the companies that you think really need to take the lead in terms of changing the pay gap and, and to a degree addressing the inequality? 
Absolutely. And we have seen some companies like Microsoft, for example, is is connecting diversity hiring now to bonuses. And Salesforce is a company where they it took them two years to do a comprehensive pay review, but they did it. These are companies that are leading in so many ways. They are on the forefront of new technology. They are, you know, thinking about creative solutions to almost everything but this. My argument is that they can do this too, and we have some of the smartest and wealthiest people in the world here, and the resources to attack this problem. Great having you with us today, Emily. Uh, it's a, it's a, boy, it's it's an amazing story. Thank you for coming on and sharing it with us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Emily Chang, you can see her on Bloomberg Television. The book is Brotopia, Breaking Up the Silence of Silicon, the Boys Club of Silicon Valley. Uh, It is available in bookstores and online right now. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.